Our scripture this morning comes first from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then from chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. For if, excuse me, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. That was a daunting task. Uh, A long passage for us to read together this morning. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm 
one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Thank you for being with us to celebrate Advent. Uh, it's my favorite time of the year. I, I love the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to take a break from the study of Ma- the Gospel of Matthew that we've been doing to for the next four weeks during the four weeks of Advent to be looking at what we're going to call the story of Jesus or the coming of Jesus, whichever way you want to put it. But the story of Jesus. What is the story the Bible is telling that leads to the coming of Jesus into the world to resolve uh, the, the tension and the conflict that the story has created. And so we're going to be looking at kind of some highlights of the Old Testament uh, throughout the next few weeks. If, you, if you've never uh, seen an Advent candle before, or if you know, you're unfamiliar with what it is, the four candles represent the four weeks uh, leading up to Christmas. You can buy one of these at the Christian bookstore uh, or some other, pla- you know, other places like that for your family to use at home. I've actually created a study guide. Uh, for your families, for family worship during the weeks of Advent. Uh, and you, there's, one, there's some here and there's some in the back as well. If you'd like to, as a family, be kind of walking through the themes and the, the stories and the teachings that we're going to be looking at as a church family. So reinforce, uh, you know, what we're doing here, let it be reinforced in your practice of family worship at home as well. And those are available for you if you'd, if you'd like those. Um, but this morning we're going to start with the theme. Uh, for today, which is creation. Now, don't miss, don't miss the proclamation of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, if you look there. The promise on the heels of the rebellion of Adam and Eve that there would be war between the serpent and the offspring of Eve, which the Bible reveals to be Jesus of Nazareth. God says that the serpent would bruise his heel, which is a reference to his crucifixion, but that his life and ministry, and especially his, de- his death, would crush the serpent's head, that he, this, this Jesus who would come, would deal a death blow to evil and would bring victory to God's peoples. The, the scholars call this the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And here we are, millennia later, still waiting, still hoping, still praying, still looking for Jesus to come and to fulfill and finish what was started way back in Genesis chapter 3. See, that's what the Advent's about. Uh, That's what the next four weeks really is, that Christmas is still four weeks away, and so for now we wait, and the waiting can be excruciating if you're 10 and you're going to get a present for Christmas you really want to play with, right? And this is what it means to live by faith and to wait for Jesus to come again, that it can be excruciating because sin and evil are still alive and well and wreaking havoc on our lives. There's still a great deal of sadness and suffering and brokenness and disappointment and shame that we all are forced to live with, but what Advent helps us to do is to take all of that and look at it through the lens of the gospel, both what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf in his first coming and what he will ultimately accomplish when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Now this Advent, we're going to look at some of the highlights of the Old Testament story of salvation, which culminated or was fulfilled in Jesus. Now the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a great resource for your family if you don't have that, or for you and your personal devotional readings. It's just fantastic. And we're probably going to be reading from, from it some during the Advent and probably on Christmas Eve as well. But the, the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it this way. Uh, the writer puts it, he says, Some people think the Bible's a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should do. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. And at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. 
There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, a piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Now, this Advent season, we're going to be looking at some of these stories that whisper his name, beginning today in the book of Genesis with the creation. Okay? Now, of all of the songs that we sing at Christmas time, probably my favorite is a song that was written um, called Joy to the World. Uh, there's a reason Isaac Watts, the man who wrote it, put it the way he did. He, if you know the verses, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Uh, there's a reason he, he did that, that we lift up our voices and sing and celebrate. But what the Bible seems to indicate is that as we do, and Jonathan even alluded to it in his prayer a few minutes ago, the fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, the text says, echo or repeat our songs of joy. And so Jesus' coming is not just something that is to be mankind that celebrates it. It is something that creation itself begins to celebrate. So Psalm 98, which the hymn text is based upon, says this. It says, the seas roar and the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joys. Now who knew that rivers had hands and hills had voices? But Jesus seems to indicate and the psalmist seems to indicate that they do. And the reason is in the third verse of the song, which is just, is, I just it, kill, it gets me every time. But Isaac Watts says, no more let sin nor sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, can you repeat, far as the curse is found. Now, what's that mean? See, there's the clue. The clue to why the song is such a joyous song and why it's so important is that the earth is under a curse because of sin. And Jesus has come to remove the curse. You see, the salvation that's come through Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas, is good news. But it's not just good news for people. It's good news for trees and rivers and rocks and hills that the curse that causes the creation to groan, as Paul says in Romans 8, is going to be lifted. That every sin and every sorrow is going to be undone and replaced by joy and love and blessing. Isn't that good news? And so this morning, I want us just to look at three things about the creation as it relates to what we celebrate at Christmas. I think three things from these passages that we see first, we are meant to see what the world was meant to be. So first, what the world was meant to be, it was called Eden. Secondly, what it has become. And then thirdly, how Jesus is taking us back to God's original design and even better. So what the world was meant to be, the Bible calls it Eden, what it's become and how Jesus is taking us back to Eden. Because that's really the story of the Bible. Now, you'll notice the headings, if you have them there on the outline, creation, fall, redemption. That's the classic Christian worldview markers. That we believe in a world that has been created by God and for God. There's a certain design in the universe that reflects God's intentions and values. And and life only works when we live according to his design. But we believe, secondly, the world has fallen. That humanity has rebelled against God and has violated his design. And that the consequences have been catastrophic. Now, sin and evil are part of our everyday lives, and we have to live with them, and we have to learn how to deal with them. But we believe that the world as it is now is not the end of the story, that it's being redeemed. And one day we will experience uh, something entirely different, and what we experience today is not the end of the story. So that's the framework for understanding all that the Scriptures teach, the story the Scriptures is telling. So let's take them one at a time, starting with this first one, creation. Okay? Now, the Scriptures 
teach that God created the heavens and the earth. You see that there in Genesis 1.1. And then out of all that he made in Genesis 2, he took a little slice of the, the large creation of the heavens and the earth. He took a little slice and turned that little slice into a garden that flourished and teemed with life. And into this place he placed the man and the woman. Now the name of the garden in verse 15 of chapter 2 was called Eden. And the Hebrew word for Eden literally means um, a place of pleasure or paradise. That's what the word means. So this is what Moses is meaning to convey to in his description of the garden, that it was paradise, that it was just, it was the, a place of supreme pleasure. Now, the word the Bible often uses to describe what life was like at the beginning of the garden is the word shalom. And it's translated peace a lot of times, but it means more than peace. It means a universal flourishing or a wholeness or a delight. It means to have all of your deepest desires satisfied. Cornelius Plantinga, who's a writer and theologian, puts it this way. He says, it's, it's, every, it's life as it's supposed to be. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. And in the garden, it was that way. There were no curses. There was no curse. There were no thorns. There were no hurricanes. There were no floods. There were no droughts. The creation was whole. Right? There was no selfishness, no greed, no envy or competition or violence or war or broken hearts, no relational conflict. The man and the woman lived in perfect harmony with one another. They were relationally whole. There was no depression No loneliness, no anxiety, no regret or shame, no guilty consciences. They were naked and unashamed, we're told. They were, in other words, they were emotionally and psychologically whole. And God, we're told, would come and walk with them and talk with them face to face. Holy smokes. But we're also told that Adam and Eve had a very unique role in the creation. If you look there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 14, it was their job to work the garden and keep it. That is, they were given oversight and responsibility to keep the garden flourishing, to keep it a place where God could come and walk and talk with them. And this is what it means, in Gen- this is what Genesis means when Genesis calls them the image of God. They were made in God's image. You know this, right? Now, when the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek, the word image there, which was given a Greek counterpart, was given the counterpart of the Greek word icon. And that's helpful for us, isn't it? Because we know what icons are, right? We have them on our computer screens, right? An icon is a graphic symbol that represents a program or a command or a file. And we also use the word in everyday language. We say things like John Wayne is the icon of masculinity, right? What do we mean by that? I have, right? I'm right? Am I right? Is that? Yes, good. Terry's, yes. Uh, that's That's not... Kaylee, that's, never mind, we won't go there. I was going to, John Wayne is the icon of masculinity. What do we mean? We mean, when you think of masculinity, what picture comes to mind? John Wayne, right? He's the perfect representation of masculinity. And if you looked it up in the dictionary, there his picture would be. He's the icon. And that's a very good illustration of what the Bible means when it calls us God's image. It means that we have been made to represent him, to mirror him. We've been made to to be his icon, to be a spitting image of him. You know what that means, right? I get that all the time. You're the spitting image of your father. I have his eyes. I have his build. When people look at me, they see him in me. And that's what it means to be made in his image, that God is invisible. The world can't see him, but they can see us, and they're meant to see him in us. And that's why, that's why he tells us to forgive our enemies, because he forgives his enemies. That's why he tells us to be patient and compassionate, because that's what he's like. And we're to image him. We're to mirror him. 
Now, the last thing I want to mention from this passage is uh, the job description, because we see that here as well. And we're told in verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lifetime's, that's, that's a million lifetimes worth of work. And again, what we mean by that is that God has taken a little slice of the creation and turned it into paradise, but the rest of the creation still needed to be subdued. That's something we don't always see when we think of this text. There was this little piece that was a garden, but the rest of it was wilderness, and their job was to go into all the earth and to take the rest of the world and through successive generations to multiply and to fill the earth and turn the entire creation into God's garden. That was their job. Now, historically, in the context, the ancient people's that Moses was writing to would have understood this very clearly. In their day, it was the kings and the pharaohs that were referred to as the image of God. They believed that these rulers, these images of God, these kings and pharaohs and rulers, that they lived somewhere between heaven and earth. They were on a plane of existence above earth, but not quite in heaven. And it was their job to learn the will of the gods and then to use their political power and their influence to bring the will of the gods to pass upon the earth. Now Moses comes along here in Genesis and writes to a bunch of slaves nonetheless, because he's writing to Israel who's coming out of Egypt, that it's not just a job for kings and pharaohs. It's something every single one of us is to do. We're all made in the image of God. We're made to have dominion. We're made to discern the will of the one true God and then to use whatever power and influence we have to bring his will to pass upon the earth, and it's why men like to mow grass. Right? Amen, Brian? There you go. It's why women nest when they're about to have babies. It's why we make Excel spreadsheets and to-do lists, and we feel so good when we cross all those things off. And don't look at me like I'm the only one who feels that way, because I know you do too. It's why we have pets, and we train them, It's why little boys play act as knights and warriors and little girls play house. We are made to have dominion. We've been made in the image of God. But always, now let's talk about the fall then, because that's creation. But the fall, and and in what we see about what the Bible teaches us about the fall, is always, always this dominion that God gives to us is a dominion that is derived from his dominion. That we are to live in complete submission and utter dependency upon God for everything. That, that Adam and Eve were to take their cues from him. And if you notice in Genesis 3, this is exactly where Satan attacks. So look with me there. Look with me in Genesis 3 at verse 5. And what's the temptation? Look, what the, look at the temptation that Satan presents to Eve. He says, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God. Another translation puts it, you will be like the Most High. Now, what does that imply? It implies that to this point, they were not like God. They were under him. They didn't rule him. He ruled them. But Satan's temptation is to come out from underneath God's rule. You will be like the Most High. He says, you won't have to take orders from him anymore. You can decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. You can be your own judge and your own authority. He whispered in Eve's ear, you don't need him. You can do without him. You can be happy without him. And in this story, the Bible is not showing us the first sin. The Bible is showing us the essence of all sin. Sin is not just breaking rules. It's wanting to live without God. It's wanting to be your own master. It's wanting to find a happiness for yourself apart from him. It's wanting to take upon yourself prerogatives that belong to only God himself. It's making decisions 
for yourself about how you're going to live your life and spend your time and your money and how you're going to use your body and how you're going to go about using your gifts and your talents with no reference to God. Sin is refusing to acknowledge his ownership of you. And Eve, we're told, look there, verse 6, Eve, she saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes. And look at this phrase, look at this phrase, and was desired to make one wise. Now, what do you think that means? I mean, if she ate it, she'd be wise. She could sit as judge. She wouldn't have to submit herself to the Lord any longer. She could decide for herself. She would now be like the Most High. She would take God's place and capture his throne. Now, the problem here that we really have to deal with is that there's embedded in the creation a design that God created the world, and he created it to work a certain way. He, he designed certain rules and operational procedures, and if you ignore those rules, you do so at your own peril. And this is where Adam and Eve just did not kind of fully understand the whole story. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it this way. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, which is gas, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy apart from himself. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because there is none. There's no such thing. He goes on to say in mere Christianity, he says, Morality raises in a good many people's minds something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time, when in reality, morality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. They're there to prevent a breakdown or strain or friction in the running of that machine. Now, what's C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying because God created the world, it has to work according to his design or it won't work at all. Because God created marriage, marriage has to work according to God's design or it won't work at all. Because he created parenting, parenting has to work according to his design or it won't work at all. Because he created human community, human community has to work according to his design or it won't work at all. And when we violate the design, when we try to shed his authority as Adam and Eve did and try to figure things out on our own and make up our own rules and decide for ourselves what is right and it's wrong, all we end up doing is causing friction or strain or breakdown. And yet Adam and Eve made their choice. You see that? They disobeyed a direct order. They took what the Lord had expressly forbidden. They sought their own independence. They violated the design. And that's why the scriptures are teaching. That's why things are such a mess now. And we continue to do it. So notice what happens in the story. We're told their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. And that probably, that was a bad day probably. Right? But what does it mean? It means, it means that's the Bible way, Bible's way of saying that they were no longer emotionally whole. That now they felt shame. They knew they had become unacceptable and unlovely. They were guilty and they knew it. And so they tried to cover their nakedness. So their emotional and their psychological reality began to disintegrate. You see that? When God came to walk and talk with them as he had always done, they did not run to meet him now. Instead, you know the story, I think. They hid. Their relationship with God began to disintegrate. And then from there, things go from bad to worse. When God confronts them... They start to blame one another, so their, their relational intimacy with one another begins to disintegrate. Human community begins to disintegrate. 
Selfishness and greed and violence begin to mark human society and the entire creation begins to unravel. Thorns begin to grow. And worst of all, worst of all, both in Genesis 3 and Romans 5, we're told that death comes into the world. Now, if you come to me, come with me to Romans chapter 5, we're going to spend the remaining moments we have together just thinking through some of the implications of what Paul says there and what Paul wants us to see in Romans 5.12, when he says in that verse, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. That means two things, as the old catechisms say. First, that we are all born guilty or sinful. Sin came, guilt came through one man, that we know there's a moral law and that we violated it. That's what Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 says, that we all know, we all know that our sin has created an objective moral record of sin that will one day we will have to come up against and we will have to answer for. That there's a judgment that's coming and we don't stand a chance. We know this. It's there. It's there. If you just sit long enough, it's there in the pit of your stomach when you wake up in the morning. It's there behind your drivenness at work or your drivenness with your kids. It's there. We all are born guilty, but we're also told we're born miserable. And what the catechism means by that is, is that we don't work right. We sputter through life like a car trying to run on water instead of gasoline. We've violated God's design, and so it just doesn't work right. Things are just messed up. We're guilty and we're miserable. But I don't want you to miss the very end of Romans 5, verse 12. It's very important, very important. Because Paul wants us to connect our experience today in our present reality with the story in Genesis when he says, look there with me, verse 12. So death spread to all men. And look at this phrase, because all sinned. Now, the Lord warned Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die, and they did. Their sin, their guilt, brought death into the world and it spread to every single one of us. We are all guilty before God and condemned by him as sinners, and we will all one day die. And if you think of that for a minute, Paul goes on to say, you know, he goes on to say we're condemned, Romans 5.18. We're condemned. By Adam's sin, we're condemned. And I, you know, I, I want to say, wait a minute, how can I, how can we be condemned for Adam's sin? I mean, that would like me be, that would like me be go, go home today and Canaan misbehaves, he's my 10-year-old, and I take my 8-year-old and I say, Isaac, you're in trouble. Why? Because Canaan did something wrong. What? I mean, how can it work that way? I mean, what is that about? I mean, how is that just? How is that fair? How can we be condemned by Adam's sin? How can I be held personally responsible for what Adam did unless I was there? I mean, how can I be held responsible for what happened in a garden at the beginning of the creation of the world unless I was there? And that's exactly the argument Paul is trying to make. Because according to Paul, I was there. And you were too. I mean, look again. Look again at the end of Romans 5.12. So death spread to all men because all sinned. What does he mean? It has to mean this. Paul says that we were there. That you and I sinned and Adam sinned. That we were there. And we sinned with him and we fell with him. And the theologians call this, this big fancy theological terminology, the federal headship of Adam. That he, just like our representatives in Tallahassee or our representatives in Washington, that he represented the whole human race And we are all held. He acted on our behalf and we are held responsible and accountable because of our our participation in his sin. That his sin, another word that's a technical theological word, his sin was imputed to us. That Adam's disobedience made us sinners. 
just as if we were there to sin with him ourselves, even though we weren't. Now, that may seem obscure and hard to understand, or you may just disagree, but I want to say it's very important. Very important for understanding the gospel. And so let's talk about redemption for just a minute. And what I want us to see is that the teaching of the Bible, especially here in Romans 5, is that all of the sin and the sadness and the brokenness and the suffering and the pain and the disease and even the death that we experience is because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. They dragged the entire creation into their rebellion And the reason that this is important, according to Paul in Romans 5, is that just as all of the sin and sadness have come through Adam, so salvation and life and blessing will come through another Adam, a second Adam, Paul says. Verse 14, he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. That word type means an analogy or a pattern. In other words, the way Adam represented us in the fall is a pattern, it's an analogy for the way Jesus represents us in our redemption. So Adam's sin led to condemnation. By his disobedience, we are made sinners. Look at verse 19. By his condemnation, we are made sinners. By his disobedience, we are made sinners, Paul says. We are credited with his sin and so held liable for it and its sentence, which is death. But this is a pattern of the gospel. Keep reading there. Because in the same sentence, Paul says that even though we are condemned, we can be justified, verse 18. We can be justified, and that word means that it's a, it's a judicial verdict. It's, it's the gavel coming down. It's what, you know, it's what my dad's going to do probably this week in his courtroom when he starts. It's the gavel coming down, whack, not guilty. That's what that word means. It means we've been forgiven, but more than that, it means we're right. That everything that was broken has been put back together and we're finally right. And, but how in the world is it that we can be justified? Surely, surely it can't be through a righteousness of our own. We're all guilty, We've already seen that. Even the best moral efforts that we could produce are stained with selfishness and greed and corruption. There's none righteous, no, not one, Paul says in Romans 3. So how can we be justified? How is it that we can be justified if we're born guilty and broken? And Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. You see that? So there's a record of righteousness that leads to our justification, but it's not our record of righteousness. It's not our our obedience. I mean, the truth of the gospel is this, that Jesus has been obedient for us, and it's his perfect record of righteousness that that leads to our justification. And so let me try to sum up this argument Paul's making here, because it is dense theologically. Paul's saying no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your family pedigree might be, We are all guilty, and one day we're going to die. Because even though we weren't physically there in the garden with Adam, we were spiritually connected to him. He represented us, and through his disobedience, we were made sinners and so condemned. But this is a pattern of the gospel, because in the same way, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and let me make that qualification, because Adam represented the whole human race. Jesus represents those who put their faith in him and who belong to him as his his people. If your faith is in Jesus, if you belong to God, then here's what the Bible's teaching. Even though you weren't there physically when he lived and died, you're spiritually connected to him. He represented you. And so through his obedience, you're made righteous. If your faith is in Jesus, then when he died on the cross, you were there. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2. You were co-crucified with him. When they put his body in the tomb, you were buried with him. And when he rose from the dead, you rose with him, Romans 6 says. And he's seated, this is my favorite, he's seated in the heavenly places right now. And Ephesians 2, 6 says that you're there. 
that you're seated with him. So see, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is, this is the summary of what this passage is teaching us about the gospel, that the essence of sin, the essence of sin is our substituting ourselves for God, but the essence of the gospel is God's substituting himself for us. That we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, but in response, he put himself where only we deserve to be. That Jesus came into the world and he took upon our, himself our sins and he went to the cross and he suffered the punishment that was due us for our disobedience. He was the one who died, not us. He was the one that faced the wrath of God. He was the one who went before the court and was found guilty. And that's what we celebrate. That's the essence of the gospel, that sin is our substituting ourselves for God, putting ourselves where only God deserves to be. But the gospel is that the truth of Christ coming to earth God's substituting himself for us and putting himself where only we deserve to be. You see, Jesus is the second Adam. He came into the world to do what the first Adam failed to do. And at the very end of his life, in his last hours, he was in a garden. You get that? Where did it go wrong? In a garden. Where the first Adam failed miserably. But where did it go right? In another garden. Where a second Adam came. And in the moments of his greatest anguish, he lifted his face to the heavens and he prayed a prayer that was brilliant in its simplicity and yet in in its beauty. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And that prayer was really a summary of his whole life, that he is the one who lived in perfect submission to the will of the Father. He was completely dependent upon the Father for everything. And in that one prayer, all that was lost in the fall was regained. I mean, what was Adam's prayer? Adam's prayer was, not your will, Mine be done and consider all the misery and suffering that has resulted from his selfishness and ours. But the second, Adam, second Adam's prayer was the exact opposite. The second Adam's prayer undid everything that was done by Adam's prayer. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And that prayer has unleashed a movement of sacrificial love that is continuing to this day to repair the breakdown. See, Jesus never violated the design. And if you look carefully at Colossians 1, which was... Our call to worship, you'll see that Paul calls him the image of God. Isn't that interesting? He, in other words, he is the one who can make things right again. He is the one that can come in and emotionally and psychologically heal us. He can put community back together again. He is the the Adam, the true Adam, the one that Adam was a type of, the one that would ultimately come and do what Adam failed to do, that would stand in Adam's place and accomplish all that Adam was supposed to accomplish. He would even bring the creation and renew it. Remember when he spoke to the winds and the waves, what did they do? They obeyed. And the Bible says that through the Spirit, here's where we get brought into this, that he is conforming us to his image, that he is making us like him, that we, in Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, become the images of God that we were meant to be at the very beginning. And, in, and by the Spirit, he's putting into our hearts and into, onto our lips the same prayer, not my will, but yours be done. You see, what we celebrate at Christmas is not only that Jesus came as the the true image, as the second Adam, to undo all that has been done, but not only that, but that he is now, by the Spirit, putting into our hearts the same prayer and conforming us to the same image, that as we become a people who can pray like that, like he did, then we'll be taking our city and turning it into Eden. And that's the movement of the gospel we celebrate. And so let's pray just to that end this morning, if you would, with me, okay? Let's pray together.
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For you have created man a little lower than the heavenly beings, that scripture says, and you have given us dominion over, over every living creature on the earth, over all things that move and all the fish that swim in the sea and over the fields and the trees and the rivers, that we are the ones who you have entrusted with the stewardship and the care of all that you have created. And we confess to you that we have failed miserably, that we have not lived as your images. We have not subdued and had dominion for your name's sake, but we have sought to take our power and our influence and to build kingdoms for ourselves, that we have followed in our, in our father Adam's sin and we have turned away from you and, and we have prayed over and over and over again, not your will but mine be done. And we stand before you guilty and condemned and miserable, broken, helpless, apart from the work of your spirit to come and to put us back together. And so, Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the second Adam, that you have come to rescue us and to redeem us, that you have come and you have offered the obedience that was Adam's to offer from the very beginning and that was ours to offer after him. Uh, But you have offered it. You You have come and lived a life of perfect righteousness before the Father. And so now if we have our faith in you, if we put our confidence in you, you promise to come and to take our guilt and to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west and to take us into your hands and begin to put back together what is so shattered and broken and to turn us into your images and to call us back to the mission once again. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray this Christmas that we would embrace you and that we would enter into the story of the renewal of the whole creation and that we would celebrate with the trees and the fields and the rocks at the coming of the King. Uh, that you might be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving, and I do hope that the next four weeks are very profitable for you spiritually. I would remind you again of the Advent, the guides that we've put together for family worship. They're here and in the back. You can also get them on the website, so look, look for those. Um, we've made a royal mess of things. That's what we learned in the gospel, and yet Jesus has come. And what we celebrate is Christmas. in Christmas is just that, that his love for us was so profound that when he looked upon us in our sin and our misery, his heart was moved to do something. He could not stand by and do nothing. And so he came. And he came to redeem us, but it does not stop, the hymn writer says, until uh, every hint and trace of the curse is put away. Uh, no more let sorrows, sins or sorrows grow, no thorns infest the crown. And so that's what we celebrate, that even the creation itself is being renewed. Uh, And that's the big story of what Jesus is doing and what we celebrate at Christmas. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, then no matter who you are, how bad you've messed up, uh, even though you weren't there with Adam, but you were, and he represented you, if your faith is in Jesus, then even though you weren't there, when Jesus perfectly, perfectly worked righteousness on our behalf, uh, God the Father counts you as being there with him. And so you can receive uh, the benediction which is the promise of his blessing and his favor resting over your life. So receive this this morning for all of you who have put your faith in Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.